Before we begin this afternoon, I would like to uh, make sure that vacant seats are identified. If you could uh, scoot from the aisle, if you are seated with an empty chair in your row and uh, allow that to be at the end of the aisle, those coming in as they are now will have an opportunity to find it. If there is a seat in your row, would you simply raise your hand? Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all compassion, who comforts us in our sorrows so that we can comfort others in their sorrows with the comfort we ourselves have received from Christ. On behalf of the Lindbergh family, I'd like to welcome you here today to this celebration of life and faith as we seek to honor Dr. John Lindbergh and glorify his Savior. Anticipating this bittersweet day of sadness and joy, John desired that we hear these words tucked away in his Bible found in the book of Job. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool of lead or engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eye, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In the early morning hours of December 18th, as a silent night was dissolving into a day we will never forget, the Starlight Limited pulled into Covenant Shores Station and our 95-year-old friend heard someone call, All aboard! And with the excitement of a 10-year-old kid, John bounded up the steps for the trip of a lifetime. He knew that this train was bound for glory. Our friend went home for Christmas. The father welcomed him. The lights of heaven twinkled bright as he was ushered in. The little drummer boy marked time. John knew that he belonged. He met the shepherds and the kings and heard the angels' song. The tree of life he'd read about stood evergreen and tall, yet Jesus' presence was for John the greatest gift of all. He bowed before Emmanuel the lamb upon the throne. He sang his praises to the Lord and worshiped him alone. And even though we know he's home, I'm guessing we'll still cry. But that's okay. Tears prove the love we had for this great guy. 
We begin our celebration this afternoon singing a hymn that John requested was sung at his grandfather Isaacson's funeral when John was but 16 years old. And he wants us to celebrate together with him as we sing of the wonderful grace of our loving Lord. Good afternoon. My name is Peter, and I am the current senior pastor of this church, John and Polly's Church. The last six years that I've known John have been impactful to me personally. Uh, at first, it started with his age. He was really old. <laughs> and that was a good thing. Then his voice, he had a great voice. Then his words, they were always spot on and to the point. Then the story of his life began to unfold, and now his death. I want to invite us to hear from John one more time. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. I have to comment about our pastor. You know, when he asked you to do something, it's awful hard to say no. You know, he came from the East Coast, and he commented about fish and chips. It's going to take a while for fir trees to grow out of his ears and salmon scales to come on his back, but it's coming. <laughs> My name is John. I'm a sinner. And I stopped to think about it the last few weeks and when I've had this assignment. It uh, kind of led me to a little bit of depression. Uh, going my own way to work hard to look a little better than the next guy working for myself just didn't seem to add up. But thankfully, God has provided me a way through Jesus Christ who has forgiven my sin when I confess it. In fact, he even forgets it. I haven't forgotten it, but I thank God that he forgets it. It gives me strength to walk each day. And this, of course, is the promise God gives to all of us when we realize the status we really have in our life. So thank God for what he promises us through his son, Jesus Christ. Sorry to, use the, sorry to have to use my voice again. I'm not sure why I wanted to play this clip. Maybe it was because I wanted to hear his voice and words again. Maybe it was because he mentions me, and that makes me feel like my credit score goes up. Maybe it reminds me of the two things that I find myself returning to again and again when I think about John. First, his humility, and related to that, his curious mind. His curiosity, a desire, desire to learn, that I can relate to. But his humility, less so, though I admire it. It's probably not fair for me to compare my current self to John's more mature self. And John never drew attention to my youthful arrogance or to his own humble spirit. And I suppose that's the nature of humility, not thinking less of oneself or others, but thinking of oneself less, as C.S. Lewis puts it. 
In his last years, Sean gifted me with something that was diminishing quickly for him, time. He regularly asked me out to eat fish and chips or noodles, and he always insisted on driving, and I always insisted on feeling a little bit scared. <laughs> As we ate, we talked about church and God and politics and trains and the Salvation Army, and of course, Polly, the girl who said yes. At our last meal out, he listed out for me all the preparations he had made to make sure Polly would be all set up. John, it's all set up. You lived a good life. You finished the race that was marked out for you. So John, we release you. Go in peace. Rest in peace. We'll see you soon. Would you pray with me? God, as John imitated Christ, may we imitate John. As John finished his race, may we attend to ours. May today seeds be planted and watered in our own hearts of all that John treasured. And may today John be honored and Christ glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been given a set of verses that John requested to have read today, and they are a little bit long, but he lived a long life, <laughs> and he's earned this time, our time. So um, I invite you, if you would like to close your eyes and meditate on these words as I read them, or keep your eyes open and think about John, these are the verses John wanted to have read today. First, from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake... I am still with you. Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these, all these things will be given to you as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The word of the Lord. My name is Bud Palmberg, and I used to be pastor of this congregation. Our present pastor asked you or suggested that maybe when he read the scriptures, you might want to close your eyes. I would like to ask you to open them again. I have known John Lindbergh since 1966. I remember that even then, John asked hard questions, deep questions. I will miss him so much. His wisdom and his example and his multiple phased ministry not to be forgotten. The Apostle Paul wrote much of our New Testament and many of the books that he wrote were from his cell in prison. When he wrote to Timothy, his spiritual son, he was awaiting his trial and inevitable execution by Nero. And when he looked over his life and its nearing end, he wrote to young Timothy, 
And I read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, Philip's translation. The time of my departure has arrived. The glorious fight that God gave me, I have fought. The course that I was set, I have finished. I have kept the faith. The right future for me holds the crown of righteousness, which God, the true judge, will give me in that day. And not, of course, only to me, but to all those who have loved what they have seen of him. The last time I spent with John, it was obvious to any onlooker and to him that the time of his departure had arrived. Yet with John and all those who love our Lord, such a departure is not sorrowful or fear-filled. We remember what Paul wrote to the Philippians with a similar awareness of his death in mind, and he called upon them repeatedly in a four short chapters of Philippians, rejoice. The time of my departure has arrived, and it shall for each of us. As our chaplain at Covenant Shores frequently says at memorial services, each one you attend is nearer to your own. The time of my departure has arrived, and the glorious fight God gave me I have fought. The 20th century translation in the New Testament translates it this way, I have run the great race. Paul often loved to use athletic analogies. He uses the term race repeatedly in Galatians and Philippians and Corinthians. Even in Ephesians 6, he talks about wrestling. I don't know what his background was that made him such an athletic fan or find the field of athletics such a rich field for analogies, but he did. And it's true that John fought, that he finished, that he kept. The course that I was set, I have finished, brings to my mind Hebrews chapter 12, when he says, we are to run with perseverance, with patience, Steadily, not a sprint, but a marathon for John, 95 years. John was so steady and patient a member. He seemed always to be a calming influence. I can remember the years I was pastor and John was on our church board or just a friend over coffee. That very often I would be wound up and ready to roar, and John was this calming influence, needed by me and thanked for by the congregation. <laughs> he was a calming influence in his field of medicine with the Salvation Army and its leadership, with the church here, with me personally. The course that I have set, I have finished. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul kept faith because he was in a terrible, pressured time when 
Christianity was spreading to Gentiles as well as the Jews, and Paul received an awful lot of heat from those who wanted to be Judaizers, who wanted to have people converted to Christ take some of the rules and laws of Judaism. He was pressured by the compromisers. John had a rock solid faith foundation that didn't prevent him from asking some deep questions. In fact, the last time I saw him, he was so weak, he could hardly speak, and he very quietly asked me a deep question that I had no clue as to its answer. And that characterized our friendship of over 50 years. But it challenged me to think his deep questions were always asked in the context of his sure and certain faith in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John's love was really Christ-like in many ways, his love for us all, his acceptance of us, all of us, of each of us, the residents of Mercer Island and the unfortunates of our city and our state and our nation. He endeavored to keep first things first. I never saw or sensed in our friend John rejection or unacceptance, no matter what we or they would bring into his presence. He endeavored to keep first things first. And so Paul goes on to young Timothy and he says, so the future holds for me the crown of righteousness. Now, I don't think that was really too exciting to John, but he was not the kind of a guy in his humility that would go prancing around wearing the crown of gold with jewels. But that's not the crown that Paul is talking about here in Philippians. He is talking about the laurel wreath that was given to the winners of the race. I have run with diligence, with patience, the race that was set before me. Therefore, there is reserved for me the laurel crown of the winner. And that winner is now our friend John. When I read, the time of our departure is at hand, and when I was reminded of that in my last visit with John, I went home and I did a little bit of digging and discovered that the term departure that Paul uses in Philippians can be and is in other translations translated not as departure, but as loosening as in the loosening of the moorings, the releasing of the ropes of a docked ship, which allowed the ship to depart. And with this in mind, I keep thinking of our Captain John Lindbergh and his many years of naval service when I read what may be very familiar to me, but is appropriate for John. It's called the ship. I am standing on the seashore, 
A ship at my side spreads her white sails to the morning breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She is an object of beauty and strength, and I stand and watch her until at length she is only a ribbon of white just where the sea and sky come to mingle with each other. And then someone at my side says, there, she's gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight. My sight, that's all. She is just as large in mast and hull and spar as when she left my side. Just as able to bear her load of living freight to the place of destination, her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at the moment when someone by my side says, there, she's gone, there are other voices ready to take up the glad shout, here she comes. And that's what we mean by death. That's what we call life eternal through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Blessings upon you and upon your memory, Brother John. Amen. Today's hymns personally chosen by our dear friend. Let us sing of the deep and amazing love of our Lord. Good afternoon standing room only as we knew it would be for dear John. He touched so many people. And I just want to tell you, my name's Julie Steele. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would stand at the back every Sunday, and dear John would come up and take my hand and say, special person, and I know he only said that to me. <laughs> Please join me in prayer. Oh God, we thank you that you have made each of us in your own image. You have given us gifts and talents with which to serve you. We thank you so much for John. The years that we shared with him, the good that we saw in him, and the love that each of us received from him. Now give us strength and courage to leave him in your care, confident in your promise of eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God, as we remember our unity with John and all of the saints who have run the race before us, we join together now in reciting the prayer that you taught your disciples. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The year was 1923, a most remarkable year in the history of the world. 
That was the year insulin was introduced as an antidote for diabetes. It was the year the first baseball game was ever played in Yankee Stadium. It was the year when King Tut's tomb was opened for the very first time. 1923 was the year President Warren G. Harding died. But it was the year Time Magazine was born. So too such notables as astronaut Alan Shepard, politician Bob Dole, actor Charlton Heston, and our dear friend John Lindbergh. John was born on June 19, 1923, to Yelmer Lindbergh, a Chicago area dentist, and his wife Blanche, the daughter of Seattle steel magnate John Isaacson. He was also born a few minutes earlier than his identical twin brother, Bob. Within a couple of years, the twins, along with their parents, moved west to Seattle, where John and Bob's father opened a dental practice downtown. Raised in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle, John grew up attending First Covenant Church with his parents and his brother and with his sister Anne when she joined the family a few years later. His faith was nurtured by the ministry of the church and the spiritual roots of a deeply committed Christian family. Summers at Covenant Beach Bible Camp, which John and Bob attended the very first year it opened in 1935, also proved to be a source of spiritual growth. As identical twins, John and his brother Bob enjoyed sharing their childhood, often being dressed alike by their mom, and occasionally playing tricks on their friends and strangers who weren't quite sure who was who. Discouraged from playing football by their pragmatic dentist father, who didn't want the boys having their teeth knocked out, <laughs> the twins picked up the game of tennis. While at Garfield High School, John and Bob were the first twins to be elected as class officers. John as freshman class president and Bob as secretary treasurer. John went on to graduate from Garfield in 1941 before enrolling at the University of Washington where he played flute in the marching band for the Huskies' premier director, Walter Welke. Initially thinking he would major in engineering like his brother, John early on changed direction and took pre-med courses. When he learned of the Navy's V1 program, he applied to medical school at Northwestern University in suburban Chicago and was accepted. As a college student, John personally recommitted himself to accepting the Lordship of Jesus and the authority of God's word for his life. As such, as Pastor Bud has already indicated, he felt a freedom to explore ideas wherever he found them, believing that all truth is ultimately God's truth. While in med school, he attended Edgewater Covenant Church, singing in the choir. It was there he got to know the renowned artist, Warner Salmon, 
who had given the world his famous head of Christ just a couple of years before. It was also during his years at Northwestern that John became friends with a fellow med student by the name of John Dawson from Des Moines, Iowa. John was dating a girl from his hometown by the name of Mary Ann Hansen and invited John Lindbergh home one weekend to meet his girlfriend's sister, Polly. The rest, as they say, is history. Following graduation from Northwestern and postgraduate assignments, John was deployed to Germany during the Korean conflict. Following his return to the States on October 27, 1951, he married Polly Hansen, the love of his life, who would prove to be the wife of a lifetime. After working at Heinz Veterans Hospital in Maywood, Illinois, where he had a supervisor by the name of Dr. Zern Chapman, who he would one day know again at Covenant Shores, John and Polly would move out to Seattle in 1955 with their daughter Kathy in tow. John established a medical practice and practiced his parenting skills on the four additional children he and Polly would welcome into their lives, Sonia, John, Julie, and Steve. To quote from Steve's eloquent obituary printed in your program, John's life was marked by enduring faithful service, first to his Lord Jesus Christ, the reason he served others, to his wife, children, and grandchildren, to whom he never missed a chance to say, I love you, to his country as a Navy captain, to his patients practicing internal medicine in Seattle for 36 years. John was a devoted leader of this congregation from the time he and Polly became members more than 60 years ago. He served on countless committees and boards of the Pacific Northwest Conference of the Evangelical Covenant Church. His heart beat in sync with the ministries of Young Life and the Christian Medical Society, of which he was once president. You may not know this, but John Lindbergh was the first medical director of Covenant Shores Retirement Community when it opened in 1978. And during the past decade of his life, lived at Covenant Shores, he remained a much sought-after advisor because he was such a well-read observer of life. Those of us who knew him well know that John Lindbergh loved trains. His dream vacation was boarding the Empire Builder and heading east from King Street Station on the Great Northern Railroad. This man whose faith was never derailed had a heart for the less fortunate. As such, John bled Salvation Army Red. For six decades, he volunteered as doctor and as board member of the Adult Rehabilitation Center. John believed in the mission of General Booth and saw himself as a foot soldier on the front lines of the war against addiction, hunger, and homelessness. 
No wonder the Salvation Army is so well represented here today with its officers, its musicians, and don't miss that red kettle out in the narthex. John is survived by his wife of 67 years, his five adult children, 13 grandchildren, as well as by his brother Bob, his sister Anne, and their families, who esteemed Uncle John as a surrogate dad. He is also survived by those of us who gather here this afternoon because our lives were immeasurably impacted by his friendship, generosity, and faith. Oh, by the way, while doing some research on what took place in the year John was born, I discovered that the calendar for 1923, the first year of John and Bob's life, has only been repeated once in the last 95 years, and that was 2018, the last year of our dear friend's life. Now, isn't that appropriate? Peace to his memory. And now John's two sons come to share tributes of their father. On behalf of the families, uh, I want to welcome you all here. It means so much to us and to Dad to have you all here. Um, for those of you who don't know me but knew my dad, let me introduce myself. I am Dr. John Lindbergh. <laughs> I share both a title and a name with my dad. Growing up, I found that more than a little annoying. Um, I wanted to be my own person. But as I have matured, I am proud to share his name. You have, this will be long. Um, you have heard about Dad's service already. Um, I want to put that into context. Dad's Christian faith was pretty straightforward. He felt that if you believed this, it would affect your life. He lived his life as an example of how one might live a Christian life. As been said many times, Dad, um, was strongly committed to the Salvation Army. He's been on that board longer than I've been alive. Um, he loved the Salvation Army and tried to get his family and friends involved. I think many of you here may have rung the bell with red kettles uh, because Dad suggested it. Um, my own family, my wife and our kids, we spent several Christmas Eves and Thanksgiving dinners um, serving at the Adult Rehabilitation Center. Um, that is a legacy of our life and it's just an aspect of Dad's Christian faith. Um, you have heard that Dad was in the Navy. Um, I want to tell you a couple of stories about that. He was a freshman at the University of Washington when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and he, like many of his colleagues, signed up to join the military. He didn't really want to be in the Army, so he decided to try the Navy, and the Navy accepted him. Um, Dad was extremely fortunate in his Navy service. Um, they sent him to medical school, and um, the war was over before he graduated. This was very fortunate for Dad. While on active duty after that, um, the Korean War broke out and many of the Navy doctors were transferred to the Army to be Army doctors. 
and many of those army doctors were sent to Korea to be MASH doctors. Dad was transferred into the army, and he was sent overseas, but he was sent to Germany to staff an army hospital. Once again, Dad was very fortunate with his military service. One story that I remember, um, as, an active, as a, retire, a reserve officer in the Navy, you had to do one week a year of active duty service. And one year he was assigned to the Naval Station in San Diego. Um, somehow or another, he got attached to a group of US Navy SEALs. And these US Navy SEALs took him scuba diving in the waters off of San Diego. And they collected abalone and crab and other sea life and brought them to a fire on the beach and ate them on the beach. Such was dad's Navy service. <laughs> he loved serving his country. Um, in the family, things looked a little different, as they always do. Um, I remember as a kid growing up, we would often, it was our tradition to have family meals together. And dad, to his dying days, uh, the meal was set, we're sitting at the table, I'm, I'm a young man and I'm hungry and the smells are all there. And dad would then do devotions before we would eat. Um, this made it really hard to pay attention. Um, but it was part of his life. He just wanted to thank God for everything and he would do that regularly. Um, there were also times at dinner where dad would come up with this really obscure story or some very weird facts. Um, at the end of the story, he would all tell us that he learned that from his Chinese professor. I don't know if you've heard of the stories of his Chinese professor, but we kids know it. Um, I'm quite sure dad never went to China. Um, I'm also pretty sure he never had a Chinese professor. But we had heard this story so often, it just became a piece of family lore. Dad's Chinese professor is part of our family lore. Um, if you knew Dad at all, you knew there were three things he loved a lot. He loved ice cream, he loved trains, and he loved baseball. And he loved sharing these with his family. Uh, one time when my family, my wife and I and our kids were living in Chicago, we were visiting back here, and we're staying with mom and dad. Our daughters were about five and seven, I think. And dad came up to them and said, let's sneak off and go down to Baskin and Robbins and get ice cream. And my kids were like so excited to be on this clandestine mission to go get ice cream. And um, it wasn't until years later where they realized that we, their parents, knew where they were all along. Um, this, this ice cream uh, adventure also became part of our own family lore. One more piece of family lore I want to recount is Dad um, took his sons and sons-in-law for 10, 12 years straight down to spring training baseball in Arizona. Um, it was tough duty, but someone had to do it. Um, so us, us four boys and Dad would get up in the morning and uh, go hit a round of golf and then go to a Mariners game and then maybe go swim in the pool and then have dinner and then go do it again. It was really difficult. Um, we all remember this fondly. One story I remember in particular, uh, we were at a game, we were on the third baseline, there was a line drive to, the to um, a foul ball that was heading right towards us, and all of us went up to grab that ball, and it kind of bounced around and ended up in the lap of this 90-year-old woman. And dad has teased us since then about how we missed the ball and it ended up in the lap of this 90-year-old woman. <laughs> um, when we talk about dad and baseball, 
he would tease us on that forever. Um, dad's, dad was really good at modeling how to live and modeling a Christian life. One of the most remarkable things he modeled was how to transition from one stage in life to another. Uh, one that I remember in particular was when they were retiring for the third time and moving to Covenant Shores. Um, Dad worked for years to get us kids to get all of our junk out of the house and then to fix the house up and then they could sell it. Mom and Dad lived in the house up on 40, uh, 85th Street for more than 40 years. And mom loved that house. And dad knew that wherever they moved next would be a place mom would not like. <laughs> and he wanted to make sure that was not Covenant Shores. So he moved them to an apartment on Mercer Island for six months, only to move again into Covenant Shores, just so mom would like Covenant Shores. <laughs> and it worked too, didn't it? Dad was remarkable in how he lived his life and his example, how to move on. Um, about a year ago, Dad was in the hospital for um, some intestinal issues. And it was during that time we discovered that he had metastasized cancer. Once we knew the extent of that, Dad asked me to join him on his journey, as, for his medical journey. Dad has never asked for help for anything in his life. He was our provider. Um, I was proud to help him with that journey. But it wasn't easy. I was with Dad both times when he was admitted to the emergency room. I discovered that I eat chocolate when I'm stressed. <laughs> I gained about five pounds over the last eight months. I've had several great talks with Dad. I was able to tell him how thankful I was that he was my dad. As an adopted son, I could have gotten anyone, but I got him. I am so grateful. At the end of his life, I think before that, but at the end of his life, he realized that his family was his greatest thing. He often would express thanks for mom and us kids and the grandkids. He told me once that the first thing he wanted to do when he got to heaven was see his mom and dad and his father and mother-in-law. Family was important. Recently I was talking with my daughter who was in seminary and they were recounting and she was telling us that of a class she had on the theology of the church. And that day, they were going over the theology of funerals. Amazing timing. She told me about a ceremony in the high church tradition where the believer is transitioned from the church militant, the church on earth, to the church triumphant, the church in heaven. The same church, the same believer, just located differently. I can see dad entering the church triumphant. What a great sight that is. In Dad's last days, he was still modeling Christian life. He
he modeled his life, he, he modeled the end of his life with grace and thanksgiving. Um, he modeled how to transition even this last stage. Dad, it has been a privilege to share your name and title. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Good job. See you soon. Thanks, John. I hope not too soon. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be in your physics classes, man, because I'd be crying all the time. Yeah. Um, and Peter, that was just dirty. The whole playing his voice thing. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Are we ready to bring it home? Let's do this. Mom, you ready? Okay. In the eight months since my dad was diagnosed with cancer to the day he died. Was it eight months or a year, John? Okay. There were so many precious times, but there was one moment that was really iconic for me. It was just two days before he died. Uh, my niece, nephew, and sister-in-law were visiting in his little room on the second floor of the Covenant Shores Health Center. I was sitting on the ground next to his bed holding his hand, and as they prepared to leave, Becca said, We're thankful for you, Grandpa. <clears throat> I watched him gather his energy with a shallow breath. Um, at that point, he couldn't eat anymore, and he could swallow less than a thimble full of water, or he'd have a coughing fit, and what had been his commanding, full-throated speaking voice had already died. So he breathed the words out in a whisper and said, how can it be so good? How can it be so good? For him, it was a statement, a way to marvel at what he believed was the undeserved goodness of his life. Imagine that. You're dying of cancer and marveling how good your life is at the same time. For me, though, it's a question I've been asking myself for a long time when I think of him. What made his life so good? And how do I do that? Well, nothing in this world gets good without practice. And Dad had three practices that really stood out to me. First, he practiced gratitude. Dad had a remarkable way of giving thanks for everything. But where it really stood out to me was through adversities. When he was in his 60s, he had colon cancer. I have never once heard him utter a word of self-pity or anger in respect to that time. In fact, he was in the habit of recalling the time fondly, fondly, citing the new appreciation for life that he gained through the experience. He didn't waste that appreciation either. He'd always been loving, but from then on, he never missed a chance to tell us kids how thankful he was that mom had said yes and how it made it all of us possible, and how thankful he was for us. And there have been many times in my life when I was not at my best, where I felt awkward and unworthy of having all this gratitude piled on top of me. I often remark how each encounter with my dad make me feel so good, like a better person than I actually am.
He practiced gratitude in the small things as well. During the last six months, I had the privilege of doing my work over at Dad and Mom's place on Wednesdays. At the beginning of each day, he would sh- we would share a devotion together. Our times always concluded with a prayer from Dad that was one part petition and nine parts gratitude. Almost every day ended with my parents talking forehead to forehead, expressing their love to one another, and thanking God for anything that they could think of. It was natural. It was authentic. It was pure gratitude. Years of practice in the making. It was so good. He was generous with his love. Sorry. Second practice, dad practiced generosity. He practiced it with his whole being through every aspect of his life, and he was generous with his love. Most of you know that the five of us kids are adopted. In 1968, my dad was 45 years old. It was then that he and mom made the best decision of my life. (laughs) Not their life, my life, Sonia. Okay. (laughs) They were preparing for a trip to Hawaii. I can imagine the chaos in the house with four kids running around when the phone rang, and it it was Washington State Children's Home calling to let my parents know that there was a boy available for adoption. Because of the vacation, my parents turned the opportunity down, hoping that the boy would still be there when they returned a week later. Well, he was not, but I was. (laughs) Some would call it fate. Actually, some would call it crazy. He was 45 years old. My youngest is two years from being out of the house. Reset the clock on me now, and I'd be committed to an insane asylum before I changed a diaper. I don't know what he was thinking, honestly. Um, Anyway, some would call it fate, and I call it God making it undeniably clear that I was chosen to be with these parents, with this family. I often consider the life I may have led had mom and dad not extended their generous love to me. Yeah. Um, I'm a thousand percent certain it would not have been nearly so good, and I know my siblings feel the same way. Actually, I know my siblings feel the same way about their own adoptions. Lore has it that a couple of years with me, and they were ready to send me back. <laughs> they, they can't send me back now because Dad gave me power of attorney. <laughs> And they, they need me. I don't even know what it means. I just like to lord it over them. <laughs> um. <laughs> Dad also loved my mother in heaping and generous helpings. We had a sign in our house all growing up that said, the greatest gift a father can give his children is to love their mother. Uh, There was no doubt that he gave us that greatest gift. He was also generous with his financial resources. He never talked about it, but I watched a few times as dad made financial decisions that defied all earthly logic for the sake of other people. 
always for the sake of others. He never said a word about it, but I was watching. And I saw that there was a different kind of richness to be had in the economy of generosity. He was generous with his time. The list of wonderful organizations that my dad supported is long. And he was in it for the long haul with all of them. Covenant Church, Salvation Army, Christian Medical Dental Society, Young Life, the American Medical Association, of course, all aboard Washington. The practice of generosity. You know, I hope part of heaven is that he gets insight into every impact of his generosity, both direct and the influences that he had on others to act generously. It feels like a good reward. Three, dad practice cultivating community. Today, I have a group of friends that make life so good for Laura, me, and the kids. At the news of my dad's passing, I received countless kindnesses from them. It's our version of the early days of Mercer Island Covenant Church where our lives were intertwined with this wonderful community. My parents joined Mercer Island Covenant Church in the 60s when there were 35 people sitting in the wooden pews in the building up by the upper parking lot. And families like the Dings, Dawsons, Eckblads, Elkins, Lovesteads, Palmberg, Stroms, Thompsons, and many others were in it together. And by in it, I mean through the good, the bad, the sad, the unsavory. They looked after each Others' kids, they partied, vacationed, worshiped, laughed, and cried together. They helped keep each other's marriages together or helped pick up the pieces when they broke. It was the church the way it's meant to be in all its imperfections, where we invested in one another without condition for the purpose of furthering the kingdom. Dad valued those investments. He made them his entire life. He had a special talent for keeping up with people one-on-one. Honestly, I don't know how he did it. Could you raise your hand if you were ever invited to breakfast, lunch, or coffee by John Lindbergh? I don't know how he did it. What did he talk about with all you guys, anyway? (laughs) I was never so aware of his investment in community than in his last year. An endless stream of people came to see him, from people he'd known his entire life to people he'd only met this year. They came to spend time with him and leave feeling like a better person. People would stand there and tell him stories about him that made a difference in their lives and their emotions would overwhelm them. And after they left, he would often say he was surprised and humbled by that, that he didn't know that they'd felt so strongly. But before we left those visits, there were always holy moments. He would hold our hands and thank us for all we'd meant to him and speak generous blessings and encouragement and truth into our lives. Moments where goodness snuck up on us and stole our breath, where powers of comprehension escaped us and our hearts screamed, how can it be so good? In August, my dad had hit a very weak point, and we all believed he was going home any minute. He asked my niece Kirsten and I to come and sit with him and record his thoughts so that they could be written down and given to our family. He'd been thinking about them a long time, he said, and had deliberately 
commit, committed them to memory, and it's in your program. But he did it because there's only one thing my dad would want you to walk away with from today, just one. He would not care if you forgot every detail of his life, if only you would consider this with pure heart and motive. All of it, every kind deed, every invitation to coffee, every word of thanks, every act of service, every generosity, all of it, all of it, all of it was because he'd experienced the perfect sacrificial love of God. And to the best of his ability, his entire life was about doing his imperfect best to help you see what it looks like, hear what it sounds like, and feel what it feels like. And that's why we felt like better people every time we saw him. And that's why, in his own words, his answer to the question, how can it be so good, was the perfect, sacrificial love of God available to anyone who asked for it. Thank you. Every memorial service we attend is one closer to our own. And while that is a sobering thought, it's a needful reminder to make the most of every day as we seek to live the life we have left to the glory of God. Let's sing together, to God be the glory. Following the benediction, I will escort the family to Fellowship Hall as the Salvation Army Brass Ensemble plays. And once the family has uh, been ushered out, you will be free to leave and join us upstairs. Please receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>